Mahmoud was a Syrian Muslim who was in Dubai for work. And while there, he started wanting to know about Jesus and the Bible. And so he decided to contact the church that I was at. In fact, he contacted a bunch of churches in Dubai, and we just so happened to be the first ones to get back to him. And by God's grace, after studying about who Jesus is according to the Bible, he became a Christian. We became fast friends, and eventually he joined our internship program for those who are considering ministry. And it was very encouraging to continue to to get to know him during that time. And him becoming a Christian, of course, definitely did not go well with his Muslim family. Mahmoud is a derivative of Muhammad. So, of course, they were upset when he converted to Christianity. Eventually, his parents made up this reason for why he needed to come home. They acted as if they were in great desperation personally, and so he flew back. And unbeknownst to him, it was something of an intervention. While there, his parents and siblings and their leader of the mosque, they put extraordinary pressure on him to recant. And sadly, in his sin, he gave in. He gave in to the fear of man, and he did not own his Lord and Savior. It was a very difficult time for him. As you can imagine, he was still a very relatively young Christian, and he recanted simply to get out of that difficult situation. And after he returned to Dubai, as we chatted, he confessed his sins in tears. He couldn't believe that he had denied the very one God had given him, God's very own son, who had sacrificed his very own life so that Mahmoud would be saved. And though it certainly was difficult, it was in fact encouraging to see him lean on Christ and then to go to Christ despite his own sins and yet to find forgiveness once again in the gospel. It was also really encouraging to see him go on then and try and evangelize his family, his parents, his siblings, even though they did in fact disown him. And he was able to evangelize them very clearly before they all died in a car accident. Mahmoud's story sounds familiar, doesn't it? It sounds a bit like Peter the Apostle's story. Except Peter the Apostle, he didn't deny Christ under a number of people's pressure. Right? He didn't deny Christ under four family members' pressure, but instead he denied Christ under the pressure of a servant girl that he didn't even know. But despite Peter's sins... Jesus, what does He do? He persisted in His love and He powerfully used Peter to preach the gospel and then to help lay the foundation of the church. Praise God for His grace and mercy. If you know 1 Peter, which is the book that we're looking at, we see here that Peter is a very changed man. Before he gave into the fear of man, but then in 1 Peter and in 2 Peter, we see him bold for the gospel as he takes a stand on his Lord and Savior. And in this letter, we continue to look at, we see that Peter is encouraging other Christians and encouraging the Christians and their churches in modern day Turkey to persevere in following Jesus Christ, despite whatever trials and persecution and fear of man they may be experiencing. You can imagine that he speaks here out of experience. Please join with me in turning to the book of 1 Peter. We are in chapter 2 and we're going to be focusing on verses 4 to 10. 
Again, Peter was writing to Christians spread out through modern day Turkey, and they were certainly suffering for their faith. And so Peter encourages them, holding out the true hope that they have in Jesus Christ, purchased for them in Christ. And so given the great difficulty out there as they were being persecuted by the world, he calls the churches to persevere in the faith as they live out their lives as God's people, loving one another, and then learning even to engage the world and loving even their persecutors in the gospel. In our passage this morning, Peter reminds us what we can do to walk faithfully after Jesus. Here's the big idea today. We are to anchor ourselves anchor ourselves in God's plans and purposes for His precious people in Christ. Look there at 1 Peter. You're in chapter 2 once again. 4 to 10. And actually, I'll go ahead and read 1 to 12 just so we get the context here. Peter says there in 2.1, he tells the Christians and the churches, So put away all malice and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture... Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The big idea, again, if you're taking notes, which I encourage you to do, you can go ahead and review your notes after with your family members and your friends uh, during lunch. Here's the big idea. Anchor yourselves in God's plans and purposes for His precious people in Christ. That is what what is going to get you to persevere and remain faithful to the Lord Jesus, no matter the circumstance. Let's dive in. Point number one, as we think about God's plans and purposes, point number one, though we are not of the world, right? Though Christians are not of the world, we are in the world. We are, in fact, God's people built on Christ, the Lord and Savior. We are built on Christ, the Lord and Savior. Imagine being a Christian, being a Christian in an environment where the world around you mocks you for your faith in Jesus, socially isolates you for your faith, and even goes so far as to persecute you for your faith. That's what was going on with these Christians. They certainly were in physical danger. Some were being beaten for their faith. And you can imagine that this was going to take their, its emotional toil on them and spiritual as well, no doubt. 
And keep in mind too, right, we're not just talking about something that's temporary or fleeting. Add on top of this that one's social standing, right, your family's social standing for generations could be affected based on whether or not you claim Jesus. That's how it worked. This continues to happen today in various places in the world. To claim Christ in this world, in certain parts of the world, means great instability in a worldly sense at least. But for the Christian, we actually have great stability and great confidence because of who we claim, who it is that we call upon, and who we trust in, no matter the circumstance. I'll give you an illustration. I remember one time, uh, the only time actually, thank God, that my house caught on fire. I was maybe 13 years old, and my mom had left to go pick up my younger sister from school, and she had left something on the fire. She was making her delicious onion oil for us to enjoy. Of course, you, you leave it on the boil. And anyway, she leaves and she says, okay, I'm just going to be back. So I go upstairs as usual. I close my bedroom door. I turn on the radio. I'm going to get some rest as I normally do. And then I start to hear some sort of faint, faint buzzing. And I figure, okay, it's probably just the radio, you know, super faint. I got the music going on. Uh, maybe I was listening to, well, who knows what I was listening to. I'd be embarrassed to tell you. Maybe a little bit of Richard Marks, a little Metallica. Wasn't a Christian back then. But anyways, I thought it was just the radio. But then it seemed to get a little louder. And then a little louder. And then soon I realized it's actually the fire alarm. So of course I run downstairs. And you can imagine the fire was at least five or six feet down from the ceiling because there was so much of it. And I sort of crouched underneath the smoke and went toward the fire to see what was on fire. And then lo and behold, it's the kitchen. I ran out of my door, and as I'm running to, you know, a neighbor's door, uh, I look back, and of course the smoke is just pouring out of, or lifting up out of the open windows and whatnot. So I run into my neighbor's uh, house. The door is open, and there she is. She's taking care of something on the ground. And then I kind of calmly and plainly say, um, my house is on fire. Can you call the, can you call the fire department? <laughs> Uh, And then she looked at me and she said, are you serious? I said, yes. (laughs) And then she called the fire department. It was all a little crazy. But in actuality, while amidst the craziness, I actually wasn't all that freaked out. I believed in the fire department. The fire department was real. And I knew that if we called on them, they would come. And they did. Praise God. Of course, they sit there and they're blasting the water. They put the fire out and everything else. Lots of stuff gets, uh, you know, soaked. Uh, insurance, by God's grace, takes care of everything. God had to have the house repainted on the inside, new, fire, new cabinets, etc. So everything turned out, by God's grace, well. But my point is, is that because of who the fire department was, I therefore had confidence that they would deliver. I had stability, confidence. Because the Irvine Fire Department was trustworthy. You realize, friends, that so goes for us in the Christian life as we call upon the Savior. Because of Christ, because of who Christ is, we therefore can have confidence in Him. Because He is trustworthy, we therefore can find stability as we come to Him. You see that there? In 2.4, he says, as you come to Him. We as Christians, the church, We are built on the rock-solid foundation of Christ Jesus, the Lord and Savior. He is real. He really lived. He really came. He really died on the cross. And He really got up from the dead and then ascended on high to the Father's right hand. 
And we as Christians have Him as our foundation so that we would never be shaken. And what's awesome is we don't even need to see Him to have such confidence and such trust because He has spoken to us through His Word. I mean, did you notice there in the flow of the context, you look there at 2, 1, and 2, and 3, right? He says, long for the pure spiritual milk, that is the Word of God. Long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And then as you come to Him, as you come to Him, to go to Him is to go to the Word. To go to the Word is to go to Him. As you come to Him, there is trust. There is confidence. Peter himself, though he was in fact an eyewitness of the real Jesus Christ, these Christians, as he's writing to them 30 or so years later after Christ died, they hadn't seen Him. And so it says there, look there in one eight. turn over to one eight. It says, though you have not seen Him, they hadn't seen Him. You love Him. It's personal. You love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. As Christians, right, we can, in fact, have confidence and spiritual stability in this world, no matter the circumstance, because of who God is and what He has done in Jesus Christ. He is trustworthy. And so, therefore, we have a rock-solid foundation. Now, this is really important. If you're visiting with us as a non-Christian, let's say you're exploring Christianity, trying to find out what do the Christians believe, what does the Bible teach, this is really important. If Jesus is not worthy, what in the world are we doing here? Let's just put that out right straightforward. What are we doing here if Jesus and the Bible is not trustworthy? I'd be the first one to readily admit that we are wasting our time. Paul himself said that Christ did not rise from the dead. We, of all people, are the most to be pitied. Why is that? Because then Christians, we'd be building our lives on falsehood, on lies. Or, a, or you know, something that's so passing, just a philosophical thought. But that is not what Christianity is based on. It's based on the real Jesus, based on the Word of God that is, in fact, trustworthy, and therefore we can have absolute confidence in the Word and in who Jesus is. If He is worthy, which of course I think He is, and if the Bible is true, which of course I think it is, then we will readily say, then take our whole entire lives. Use it for your will. We are your people as you are our creator. You know, according to the Bible, that is God's revelation to man, Christ, the eternal Son of God, come in the flesh, is in fact worthy of your worship. He is the Son of God. Jesus, the Son of God, is God. And He pre-exists all things here. So let's just dive into some of the Bible's most important verses that touch on how worthy Jesus is. Turn over to John chapter 1, verse 1. Turn over to John chapter 1, verse 1. It says very clearly that Jesus the Son is God and He was with God in the beginning. It says here, listen up, and you want to mark down your Bibles. If that's what you do, mark it in your Bibles. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And of course, we're supposed to think back to Genesis chapter 1. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And then in verse 14 of chapter 1, he says, And the Word became flesh 
and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. Think back to how God made his presence known amongst Israel in the Exodus through the tabernacle. Well, here we have God, the Son, the Word of God, tabernacling, dwelling amongst us. And he goes on to say, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Then we got Colossians. Turn over to Colossians chapter 1. So we got all these important chapter 1s, right? We got John chapter 1. Here we go to Colossians chapter 1. Look there at verse 15. It says there, He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That does not mean created beings. Firstborn over all creation is a position of authority. It says, For by Him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. Verse 17, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Another very important uh, chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1. And then the author of Hebrews. Turn over to the book of Hebrews. We got Paul's letters... And after Paul's letters, then we come to Hebrews. And we got Hebrews chapter 1. And this too relates some very important truths about Jesus. Look at this, chapter 1. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Of course, the prophets heralded that the Messiah, that is Jesus, would come. Verse 2. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. That again, authority position. Through whom also he created the world. He, that is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So you see who Jesus is according to the word. We could just continue to go on, but those are some of the highlights. And we know why he came according to the Bible. We know who He is and we know why He came. God sent Him in order to reconcile us back to our Maker. The Bible says that God created all things, us included, to be in a relationship with God, to be in a perfect loving relationship where there was no sin. But the problem is man sinned against God. We rebelled against God. We chose to push Him down, so to speak, on His very own throne and to assume it ourselves. And what this looks like is really sort of saying, I don't care what you say, God. I am going to determine what is right and what is wrong for myself and live according to my own purposes and my own will and my own glory. So where we created the problem, as I said before, God here provides the solution in His eternal Son, His preexistent Son. Just as Kenny mentioned earlier, though we had rebelled against Him, He sends His eternal Son, Jesus, to take on flesh, to live the perfect life we should have, and to die the death that we deserve because what we, the sin that we committed was worthy of punishment. It's treason to set up our own throne in God's kingdom if he is the only king, which of course the Bible says he is. And though we had sinned against God and earned for ourselves just punishment in hell, the Bible says, God lays the wrath that we deserved onto his son so that we would taste his goodness and know God as father loving Father, Comforter, the God of mercy and compassion. If you're visiting with us, this is what the gospel is. The good news is that we can be saved, forgiven of our sin, adopted into His family, and know God as loving Father for those who repent of their sins and believe on Him. 
That's the beautiful story of the gospel. And so the Christian, the one who has turned to him, is saved. And we know him as God the Savior. This was what was prophesied of in the Old Testament. Turn over to 110. Turn over to 110, right? It says there concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them, this is in the prophets way back in the Old Testament, was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and then the subsequent glories. And here you got Peter pulling from verses in the Old Testament and showing how relevant they are today or to his readers and then for us today. Look at 2.6. Look at 2.6 here. Look at how Peter quotes the Old Testament prophets. Here we go. Isaiah. Verse 6, he says, Behold I, that is God, am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. He's talking about the Messiah Jesus who would be the cornerstone of Zion that is God's people comprised of all tongues, tribes, and nations. We we can kind of understand this language of cornerstone, right? I'm not sure if Evergreen has a cornerstone on its uh, building. I would assume not because this was, from what I understand, originally an elementary school or something like that. But our old church in Louisville had a cornerstone. And what was engraved on that stone, if I remember correctly, was the name of our church, and then the date that the cornerstone was laid, 1911. And that stone, I thought, was actually quite precious because it represents so incredibly much. To me, as our family had attended Third Avenue Baptist Church, and then as I pastored there as well, I mean, it was such a formative time for me spiritually as I grew so much in the Lord. And as I remember the cornerstone, as I, and then I was, as I would see it, I would think about all the blessings that God was giving me through the church and that's what comes to mind when I think of this cornerstone. But of course, it's not just our family that received blessings. It's actually all the Christians who have ever been part of Third Avenue Baptist Church since its foundation, first known as Third Street Baptist Church. I think of all who have gathered for the praise and worship of Jesus Christ, everybody who had come into the doors and everybody who had left the doors and then returned following Lord's Day. And it's super encouraging. But when it comes to the universal church of God, All true Christians throughout space and time, it is Christ who is the cornerstone. And for Christ, He doesn't just represent a building. He is the blessing. He doesn't just represent the building or represent the blessing. He is the blessing. He is the one who calls His church into being by His sovereign will. And He is the one who calls us. If you look there at verse 9, 2-9. He is the one who has called you, Christian, out of darkness into His marvelous light. You get the sense of God's sovereign power being wielded so that God is going to be recreating His people because His original people failed. They had turned away, turned to sin, turned to idolatry, turned to the other nations for deliverance. And so God promises in the Old Testament that a day is coming when something new is going to happen and God, by His sovereign Spirit, is going to gather His people together on Christ the cornerstone. That's why in the passage in the book of Exodus that was read for us earlier, we have God calling the people out of Egypt, right? Gathering them as his treasured possession. And then he says too, that he is the one who creates because his sovereign power not only speaks things into existence, he speaks and his people are gathered in through the gospel. Christ is the blessing 
and everybody who turns to him and looks to him will be saved. That's the context of Isaiah chapter 28, which is what Peter, which is what he quotes. Those who trust in God and his cornerstone are saved, but those who reject him will be judged. It is on Christ that the church is built by his spirit, by his sovereign will. He's building you and me on Christ. As you look there, verse five, go ahead and look there. God is taking us as living stones, built us on the living stone. And we are now God's spiritual house where God dwells. And you see there are purpose in verse 5. Look at the purpose. It is to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This here is Old Testament language that Peter applies to the church. Old Testament Israel gathered together that they would be a holy priesthood, representing God to the people. That was their function. Displaying His character to the world. And now he's saying that the church represents God to the world as we have believed on Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Just as Israel was to worship God in offering sacrifices, so the church now, whose sin has been covered by the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we have been taken in, built upon the living stone. So as you, Christian, come to Him, as we come to Him, that is Jesus Christ, and then as we live out our lives as spiritual people, everybody is to see the church's cornerstone, which isn't stamped 1911, but instead bears the name Eternal Son of God, Sovereign Lord, Loving Savior. God is building you, Christian, on Christ, all according to His plans, His purposes, just as He promised. But let's take a step back and ask the obvious question. What did these Christians, or what do you, Christian, think about all this stuff built on Jesus, God's plans, and God's purposes in the midst of suffering for Jesus, who is the cornerstone? What did their hearts think? What might you think? I mean, you guys know what it's like to suffer for your faith, and some of you even right now are going through intense suffering. Maybe some for the faith. Maybe suffering just in general. Maybe you know what it's like to be rejected by your loved ones. You know what it's like to be rejected by coworkers. And so we struggle in all sorts of ways. You know, we get discouraged, we can despair. So where is it that we go for further encouragement? This brings us to point number two. Point number two, we are to know that as Christ is precious to God, so are those who have believed in Christ. Just as Christ is precious to God, so are those who have believed in Christ. You look there at 1 Peter uh, verse 6. Let me read that. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Christian, if you find yourself suffering for the faith, did you notice what God reserves for you in Jesus Christ in verse 7? Did you see that there? God reserves honor for you who believe. Honor for you who believe, as Christ is the chosen and precious one. So, friends, God finds you chosen and precious as well, and there is honor for you who believe. I mean, how encouraging is that for you Christians, for these Christians who have been rejected by the world? I mean, in that day, there was no honor for Christians. Again, they were being persecuted for their faithfulness. And some of you guys might understand this. I mean, I used to, I experienced this as well at work. When I used to work, not here, not at this work, guys. 
But in my old work, I used to be a personal trainer and was working at 24-Hour Fitness. And all the trainers would stand in our, you know, around the office. And in front of us were all of, you know, I don't know 50, 100 different uh, exercise machines in terms of cardio. And there must have been at least 50 treadmills. And of course, uh, there were a lot of girls using those treadmills. And so what the guys would do is they would just stand there and gawk and talk and gossip and sin. And regularly they would invite me in to kind of join in this and say, Hey, Jerry, what do you think? Take a look. And I would stand for Jesus. And I would choose to not do what they were going to do. Instead, say something different and ignore or maybe tell, encourage them to do something different. And then eventually they caught on and they realized that, okay, Jeremy's not joining in with us in this debauchery. And then, of course, soon enough, I wasn't being invited to the employee hangouts and the parties and the restaurants even where we would just eat a meal. I mean, everybody needs to eat, right? And they were no longer inviting me to these places. If we stand for Jesus, we know that at various times and in various places and different circumstances, we're going to face some mockery. The same thing was going on in this day. If you turn over to 4-4, turn over to 4-4, and you'll see some of, going on, what, some of what was going on in that situation. With, this, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. For holiness, they malign you. For holiness. I got a friend too who became a Christian and then he put away drinking, or at least he was learning to, to put away drinking. He was given previously himself to drunkenness. He would do all sorts of stupid things, hurt himself, hurt his family and whatnot. And then he was starting to put it away. And then he would go to these family gatherings and he would tell them, no, I need to not drink for XYZ reason. And then they mock him. He was being mocked for wanting to be self-controlled so that he would help himself keep his job not get in trouble with the law, remain faithful to his wife, be present for his children. And if that's what we're going to be mocked for, then go ahead and mock me. Because all those things I would rather do. But that's what happens, right? They were being maligned because they refused to join in the same flood of debauchery. But in fact, Jesus actually told us that this is what was going to happen. John fifteen twenty. As they persecuted me, so they will persecute you. Second Timothy 3.12, there Paul is encouraging Timothy, his young son in the faith, new pastor, if anyone desires to live a godly life in Jesus Christ, they will be persecuted. And he's writing to them as he was maybe even a couple months from his death sentence. That's his last known letter that we have. The, uh, Jesus and Paul, they're not saying that every Christian everywhere will automatically be persecuted. He's not saying that. But this is, though, the general course for Christians and has certainly proved to be the case throughout church history. But if you think about who it is that Christians follow, the footsteps of Him that we walk after, of course we should expect this. Of course. I mean, think about the saying, right? Where the head goes, the body follows uh, you, you, we, we have this practice, or we have this saying in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, you control the head, you control the body. Or to give you another strange example of one of our family's hobbies, you can think about snakes, right? Where the head goes, the body follows. Our head, Jesus Christ, suffered. And not by accident, it was inherent to His mission to suffer and then bear the judgment and wrath that His people deserved as a substitute so that we would not have to, but instead we, could, we would come to know the mercy of God. Where the head goes, the body follows. 
So it's no surprise that Christ told his people to count the cost and to pick up your cross and follow me in Luke 9.23. But Christian, this death and this suffering is not something actually that we need to despair about. The reality is, is we all choose to die for something. What is it that you are going to choose to die for? Death comes to everyone on the planet, Christian or not. It doesn't matter. We all go down to the grave. But here's the hope, right? Where the head goes, the body follows. Just as Christ went down into the grave, so we follow as well. But we know what happens after, three days after. He got up from the dead, and where the head goes, the body follows. Just as Jesus went down into the grave, so we too go down into the grave. And for his people, just as Christ rose from the dead, so his people will follow into his eternal glory. Where the head goes, the body follows. He came out of the grave. Our Christ, your Christ. Christian, if you're suffering, your Christ lives. And so therefore, we live spiritually now, physically then again at his return. Just as Jesus rose from the dead, so he promises to take us with him to the eternal inheritance that he himself provides and is. Thus, we have a living hope, right? Peter mentioned this earlier. We have a living hope in our living Savior. And just as he is the living cornerstone, so we are living stones. Though you Christian, and these Christians certainly, were being mocked and shamed, though you may be shamed now, Remember that God has promised honor and glory then at Christ's return. Look at the end at at verses 6 and 7. Whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, of course, in Jesus. It may be that suffering is for now, but it is honor and glory then. This is the same for Jesus. There was rejection, as Peter speaks about there in chapter 2. He quotes from this verse, the stone there in verse 7, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And there what he's speaking about is the rejection of Jesus. And then you have the, the rejection, really, of the Davidic king, of God's king over his people. This is from Psalm 118, verse 22. Uh, God's king was rejected but he has become the cornerstone. In that, in that context, the king would arrive back to his people and, and he would be vindicated. Well, this verse is being applied to Jesus, the true king of God's people. He was rejected by the people, the Jews and the Romans, in his death, but he has become the cornerstone in his resurrection. Acts chapter 4, verses 10 and 11 say the exact same thing. You have Peter preaching the gospel and that's what he's saying, quoting the exact same verse. Death was his rejection. But in his resurrection, God has made him the cornerstone. That's vindication, friends. Imagine that. Your Savior, if you are being rejected right now, if you ever will be, remember, can you imagine your Savior was discarded? He was overlooked. He was judged to be of no value. He was the stone that the builders rejected. But lo and behold, Jesus has become the cornerstone of all God's spiritual people. That, friends, is vindication. And vindication through the cross and its resurrection. And Christian, just as God honored and exalted Jesus, so He will do the same with you, chosen and precious. These Christians here are called elect exiles. And as we saw earlier, God finds 
his people and his, their faith precious to him. And now, look, friends, you've been called, verse 9, if you're a Christian, a chosen race. Don't think ethnicity. Think a people with a lineage that is of the Spirit. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Friends, there's so much to be encouraged here in terms of this vindication in Jesus and so vindication in his people. First, let me ask, if you are discouraged or if you have ever been discouraged because you face difficulty, even persecution maybe, have you ever wondered if God will be faithful? Even suffering in general. Maybe you face a cancer diagnosis, health difficulty, financial difficulty, difficulty for the faith. Friends, the, the Word over and over and over again says God is faithful. God will complete what He has started in you and in His church. If God's intention, if you just think about it, right, if God's inten- intention from eternity past was to build a spiritual house on His chosen and precious Christ, will He not most certainly complete it? Does the all-powerful one who raised Jesus from the dead all of a sudden run out of power? My tank is exhausted. I can't do it. And he doesn't have any power to guard and protect his people and to preserve us until the end, to shield us by faith. Of course, he will complete it. He never runs out of power. His power is inexhaustible. Friends, He will complete it. And evidence of this is you looking to Jesus and to see, did God abandon Christ at the end? The answer is no. Friends, the Old Testament is filled with story after story after story about how we as unfaithful people have turned away from God, but yet God in His faithfulness, in His steadfast love, pursues us and renews His covenant with us. He will complete it. And He promises you, Christian, that nothing, nothing Not even your own sin, if you have been purchased by the blood of Jesus, will snatch you out of God's hand. He forgives your sins. That's what He's there. That's what He does. That's what He has done in the cross. And all that God wields, imagine all that God wields to accomplish His plans in Jesus, so He wields to preserve you until the end. Second, second thing that encourages us here, though we may be rejected, by the world, we, by God's grace, has, have already been received by Him. Though we may face rejection by the world, praise God, we have already been received by Him. The world is temporary. We are temporary here for only just a blink of an eye. We are present and then we are gone. The Word says, though it can be difficult to embrace, life is but a breath. And those people who might mock you and shame you, persecute you, They are here for only a little while. But the eternal God, friend, has already welcomed you into his home. He has already received you. These Christians were being torn down by the the world, but yet they still had confidence. They loved him. They believed in him. Why is that? It's because God was determined to save them in Jesus. We too, friends, may be crushed by the world, but we have already been created by God's sovereign power and his spirit. Worldly persecution may come, but that never, never threatens God and His plans one bit and your security in Jesus. He has already possessed you 
a treasured possession that you would be His people in the world and into eternity. And Christ having gone before, our head who has gone before, you can imagine looking back, seeing His, his trail. Christ having gone before watches over us even now. Verse 6, whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Christ is our great hope. He is your great hope, Christian. And just as He was honored in the resurrection, so, so will we be when He Himself raises us and places us immovably among His heavenly spiritual people once and for all. And there we will worship Him face to face and suffering will be no more, just as God has promised. You look over at chapter 5. Turn over to chapter 5, 1 Peter. Peter says, It's good. I love hearing those pages. He, let's hear them turn. First Peter 5 says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the glory, to Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. You hear what Peter's doing right there for us as our example? He exemplifies exactly what it is that we're trying to do here. Persevere in the faith while glorying in Jesus Christ, given everything that God is doing in Jesus Christ. He himself anchors himself in God and his promises, and therefore he perseveres, and more than that, glories in his task. And we too, as the church, right, we are to anchor ourselves in God and His promises and everything that He's doing in Jesus Christ and therefore persevere and even glory in the task that He has given us. This brings us to our final point, point number three, which is much shorter than the rest, just to let you know. We can persevere. This is point number three. We can persevere and even glory in our mission until the end. We can persevere and even glory in our mission until the very end. What is our task? What is our mission? You look there in verse 9. He tells us very plainly. He tells us who we are, who God has made us to be. And then he tells us what we are to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you, the intended result is, he gathers you together, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Who has God made us to be? He has made us to be His people in the world. Just as in the Exodus, once again, God formed His people. He delivered them. They were to be a display and a testimony of God and His character to the world as they trusted in Him and God's promises in the Messiah. But they failed. We as, our, we as His church, we don't look forward to the Messiah's first coming like the Israelites did. We look back to the Messiah that has already come, Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior. We believe on Him. He has called us together that we might display His character to the world. The purpose is that we may proclaim Him and His excellencies, His wonders, His awesomeness of Him who saves by grace in Christ. But we don't merely persevere in it. We glory in it. We glory in Him who saves. You see there in verse 10, he glories in God who saves. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
we proclaim His glory because He is worthy of it, don't we? And so we want to worship Him. We want to give glory to Him. But you know what is surprising too in relation to our task and our mission? We proclaim His excellencies so that by God's grace, our persecutors might as well. That's weird. For, for, for the newcomer, if you're exploring, right? Well, that's exactly what Peter's doing right there. You, you look at God's, what God's holy people are to do there in 2.12. Look at 2.12. This is exactly where Peter's going. We proclaim His excellencies, not just within but outside so that our persecutors would come to know the same mercy that we ourselves know. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles. That is those who don't believe. Those who do not believe, no matter what ethnicity they are, they're spiritual Gentiles. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that, here's the purpose, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, of course they speak wrongly, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. They are to glorify God on the day of visitation, even though they are the ones that criticize and mock and malign and persecute Christians. Of course, there's no surprise, right, that, that Peter says is where the head goes, the body follows. Jesus himself bore the reproach of sinners so that sinners who repent of their sins and believe would be saved. And so now we as his Christians who follow in our Lord's footsteps, who is our head, we also are to bear the reproach of sinners while proclaiming all along that God is a God of mercy who saves. And because I have that hope, the hope of glory, the hope that Jesus has reserved for me, honor, I can freely let go of this world whenever the Lord would call me to. We proclaim to even our persecutors grace and mercy in Jesus. And even as we suffer, we say, and He stands with open arms for you too. Just as many Christians down throughout history did this, so we too can do this as we entrust ourselves to God no matter the difficulty. You look over there at chapter 2, verse 20. And eventually we'll get to this, hopefully before a year, but eventually we'll get to this. You could get to this this afternoon. 2.20. They're suffering for the faith. They're being beaten for the faith. And then in verse 21, he says, for to this, that is suffering unjustly. He says, for to this, you have been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed." For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. You see that? Because we know forgiveness, because we have tasted the grace of Christ and the mercy of God, because we have been called to be part of His people built on Christ the cornerstone. We live not for this world, but we live for Him into eternity. And therefore, knowing that we have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls, knowing that we were purchased for righteousness' sake, 
we can freely continue doing good while even experiencing difficulty. And though as difficult as that might be, we are reminded, we recall the king's promises, your Savior's promises as you endure. Matthew 10, 39, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Or this one, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Matthew nineteen twenty nine. Christian, your God is faithful and good and He can be trusted. Knowing this more deeply and then clinging to it more tightly is what enables us to persevere and fulfill God's good purposes for us as His church in this world. That is, to proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we do thank You for Your grace and Your mercy. We thank You, Lord, that where we once lived for the world and for ourselves, You showed us something better. You showed us the only One in whom there is hope and mercy, that is Jesus Christ. You showed us the only One who is worthy of all glory and power, that is Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we pray that we as a church, though we may experience difficulty, and certainly we will experience suffering. God, we pray that You, by Your Spirit, would remind us of all of these truths. Remind us, as we prayed earlier, that You would remind us of Your great love for us in Christ. And so we would rest secure in Your hands, confident, stable, no matter what might happen. Lord Jesus, I pray too that if there are people here who do not know You and do not know this confidence and this stability in this ever-changing world, this brief and momentary world as life is but a breath, Lord, we pray that You would take the gospel of good news in Jesus Christ and You would impress it upon their souls so that they might see Christ and taste that He is good for the very first time. We pray, God, that You would help them savor it. And for those exploring, God, we ask that we as a church would be happy and eager to proclaim Your excellencies as we study the Bible and help point people to Jesus Christ. Move in people's hearts that they would repent of their sins and believe. We pray, God, that as we proclaim Your excellencies, may we do so remembering that we are in need of You and Your grace and Your mercy. In Your name we pray. Amen.